Recorded live from Winterfell Studios in Portland, Oregon, this is WPR, Westeros Public Radio. From the Princes of Dorne to the Kings in the North, we bring you the latest and greatest in Westeros. Eight days a week. Hey, small folks. Hello and welcome to another edition of WPR. I am your host, Lynn the Jazzman Thunder, joined today by the tried and true, true blue, Lord of the Soundboard, John Bryan. Thank you, Lynn Thunder. How are you doing today, John Bryan? I'm doing good today, Lynn Thunder. Vela Macoris. Vela Yes. Yeah, that's how you do that. Yeah, for anyone who doesn't know, that means all, must, all men must die and all men must serve. That's right. And we totally got it right on the first take. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> Well, what do we got on the show today, John Bryan? Coming up on the show today, we got top five moments in the show that are better in the show than in the book. That's right. People are always talking about how much better the book is in the movie or than the show. You know what? Here's some times where the show is better than the book. Yeah, I mean, it, it varies. Some parts of it are much better in the book, and some parts in the show are much better. So we're going to break down a few of those. Yeah, we all enjoy them both, so we're going to celebrate them both. Yeah, also, we're going to be having an in-depth discussion on the Iron Islands. That's right. I did some research into them, lived with them for a while, and went in there asking myself the question, Ironborn, raping pillagers or religious pariahs? Ooh, that is a good question. I investigated. Yes. We will come to the bottom of that answer. That's right. No Wars of the Roses this time, small folks. Sorry, I just didn't get it done. That's all right. Next time, though. Next time. All right. Should we uh, head to Westeros uh, by way of the Iron Islands? To Westeros. To Westeros. (laughs) Come, bow before your king. Bow your shits. It's a shame the throne is made of cocks. They'd have never got him off it. Okay, small folks, so here is our piece on the Ironborn. I really enjoyed doing this piece because, John Bryant, i got to tell you, the Ironborn are actually my favorite people in the entire books. Really? That's awesome. They're yeah. pretty badass. There's some good in the Ironborn, but it's mostly bad. <laughs> yeah, people, that kind of brings us to our first point. You know, who are the Ironborn? Because they're kind of a little different than everyone else in Westeros. Uh, no one else is really on their side. They're not really on anyone else's side. So, and you know, I looked into the history of the Ironborn, and this is kind of where it all starts, because people keep them at an arm's length. And this has been going on since day one. Yep. See, the first people in Westeros were the first men, right? Yep. So you got the children of the forest, the giants, and the, the old first gods. men. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, and the old gods come from all the forest and woods and everything, you know? But the Ironborn on the Iron Islands, they really didn't have any of those forests, none of those werewoods, because it's all rocky and everything Yeah, it's very sparse and thin soil there. Yeah, so they actually never had the old gods on the Iron Islands. They had what was called the Drowned God. Yes. Which is a badass god. He's constantly in this war against the Sky God. The Sky God is trying to... The Storm God. Yeah, the Storm God. He's trying to kill everyone. Compare that to the old gods, these wood gods, don't really do anything. No. Just kind of sit there and watch. Yeah, it's kind of faces on trees. Yeah, I mean, they're kind of cool, but yeah. the Drowned God's a little more badass. Yeah, the Drowned God's badass, and the Storm God is, his whole, like, purpose in life is just to kill people. And yeah. And just, like, wreck ships and uh, make it terrible for humans to be living on planet Earth yeah. or in Westeros. But the crazy thing is, is, like, the Drowned God isn't actually... Out totally trying to save everyone all the time. It's just like, uh, maybe don't kill him so much. Yeah. Because he'll kill people too. <laughs> oh, yeah. He loves people getting killed. He loves people getting drowned. Yeah. Yeah, he's not like an omnipotent, like, this is the best of the best kind of god, like all the other gods are kind of perceived. He's kind of a dick too. <laughs> yeah. He, and his people reflect that. Exactly. He wants you to join his drowned halls. Uh-huh. And if anything, he's trying to throw a party and wants people to come. Yeah. And to sacrifice to the drowned god is just... Throwing somebody overboard. Drowning yeah. somebody. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. God's going to have his due. So they've got this almost immediately different mentality from everyone else in Westeros. Everyone else in Westeros is running around being all hippie and dipshit in the woods, and the Ironborn are sitting there thinking, like, oh, man, maybe we should kill people. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, the other difference is, the main difference is that there's actually, like, a priesthood for the drowned god. Mm-hmm. The drowned men. Yeah, it goes all the way back to the very beginning of the Iron Islands. And the priesthood actually goes, it's not really organized the way, you know, like the Catholic Church would be or anything like that. 
But it's a, it's a loosely knit group of priests who go around and kind of enforce the drowned god's will. I mean, there's no priesthood in the old gods. No, no. Aren't they the green men? Are the green seers? Aren't they kind of the priesthood guys? Yeah, but they kind of like go off and do their own thing. They don't That's really true. like interact with society. Yeah, there's not like a church of the old gods. Yeah, yeah. which is another big difference between the Iron Islands and the rest of Westeros going right back to day one. I mean, this is really kind of, I think, the fascinating part of the Ironborn. Everyone looks at them weird like they're different, and they are different. And I think it, a lot of it has to do with the difference in religion. Yep. So, I mean, the drowned god. I, I'm just gonna read something here. Uh, it is said that the drowned god made the made the Ironborn to reeve and rape. Yeah, like that's what the, their god made them for to reeve and rape. Yeah, and reeving and raping is the old way, and yeah. that's their whole culture. It's like it's good to do these things because God wants us to. Exactly. And <laughs> who is there to reeve and rape? Well, it's the rest of Westeros. Yep. So you know, right from the very beginning, the Ironborn are not plugged into the rest of Westeros. They're totally different. And that's how they interact with Westeros. Now, but here's the other deal, because they are even and raping all the time. And in fact, during like the first men age, like they control the entire western seaboard of Westeros. Yeah. Uh, they're, they're huge. They're, their kingdom's gigantic. It's just like where the Twins is and the river lands is a big part of that now, yeah. Yeah. I mean, it, all the way down to Dorne. Oh, wow, I didn't know it went that far. Oh, yeah, they're reaching sure. everything. Yeah. I mean, they, they controlled the island that has Old Town on it. The Citadel. You oh, know? wow. Yeah, yeah, the Arbor. Uh, so, I mean, they were intense because they've got their longships, and the longships are just badass. In fact, it was said that the Ironborn's reach extended as far as men could hear the waves. Oh, wow. So it was pretty much if you were anywhere near the ocean, you're in Ironborn ter- territory. Yeah. I think it's also a function of the fact that they come from the Iron Islands, which there's not much there. You can't really grow enough food there to feed the entire population. They've got a lot of tin and iron, but not a lot of food, and people can fish, but again, it's kind of looked down on. Yeah. You don't want to be, to a, be fisherman. a fisherman. is to be like a second-class citizen. Yeah. Like, yeah. So then another reason that they're always reaving and raping is to do it for supplies. I mean, there's no trees on the Iron Islands, really, So they, and how are they going to make their boats? Well, they got to go get timber from Westeros. Yep. And they got to get food to last them through the winters because they barely produce enough food during the summers, no food during the winter. But they also do it for, like, enjoyment and plunder, because, you know, they, they get honor, first of all. Mm-hmm. Like, they're a badass reaver and raper. Like, that's how you get prestige in ironborn culture. You get thralls, which are slaves. Mm-hmm. And you get salt wives. Salt wives. John Bryant, during my time with the ironborn, I got me a few salt wives. Oh, yeah? Oh, yeah. All right. <laughs> get any butt boys? No. Oh. No. <laughs> Who told you that? <laughs> butt yeah. boys were the boys that they had that they would on the ship when they got bored with their salt wives, I guess. Thanks for explaining that. Well, just so people know it's in the books. Okay, so. <laughs> all right. <laughs> how, how bored of your salt wife would you have to be to actually go gay? Hey, man, they say, you know, how there's, like, prison gay? There's, I think there's, like, out at sea for a long, long time gay, too. But even with your salt wives on board? Well, maybe they didn't always have the salt wives. Maybe, I guess not. I'm sure if, like, they were running out of food or whatever, the salt wives are the first ones overboard. Probably. So the salt wives are the first ones overboard if you're out of food and stuff, and the butt boys still have to, like, maintain the sails and tie knots and you know, do other stuff. Yeah, I guess so. I mean, I, I don't want to talk about butt boys anymore. <laughs> all right, all right. <laughs> anyway, honor's a big deal in the Iron Islands, and you get it by reaving and raping and go out and being a badass. And it's a big deal in the Iron Islands because they're actually kind of democratic, at least back in the old days. Yeah. Because they would elect a king. It wasn't something that was passed down. All like the great ship captains and heads of clans and houses would get together and basically elect a king. And it was all run by the priests. The drowned god? Drowned men priests? Yeah, the priests yeah. would kind of run the show. That was, that was kind of how they exerted power, too, because if they could tell you who the next king was going to be, they, that's some power. And apparently they could also call this, it's called a king's moot. And uh, they could call it king's moot to even, like, get rid of a really shitty king. Yeah. So, you know, the priests have a lot of power. And it's also, it's like the only semi-democracy that there is in Westeros. You know, everything well, else is big houses. No, no one else gets elected. That's true. Probably at that time, definitely. I mean, yeah. in Old Town, they, do, they have some democracy kind of stuff at the Citadel, but yeah. Yeah, not during this time, though. No. 
How and how did how does a king's move work? It's not like a fight, which I always kind of thought it was gonna be, but yeah, it was more a, of a debate. Yeah, almost. It's like a bunch of guys get together and they figure out who's gonna be king. There isn't a winner until the majority of the crowd starts chanting one person's name. Yeah. Louder than the other people, I guess. Yeah, it's got to be... It sounds like it's got to be a lot of people. Yeah. And apparently they go on for a long time sometimes. And obviously, this is not something that you want to have to deal with if you're a king. You know, this check on your power. So there's... Throughout the Ironborn's history, there's kind of this tension in their society between the kings who want to, you know, pass their power on to their sons and increase the power of their houses, and these priests who want to make sure that it's more democratic so they can have more control. Yeah. And it's it's kind of fascinating to yeah, see. Yeah, and the priests don't want to see an ungodly man on the throne. Like, they don't yeah. want anyone elected that isn't, you know, worshipping the drowned god. Which is kind of their code for we don't want anyone on the throne who's not going to be cool to us. Yeah, exactly. It's this cool kind of tension that runs through, and throughout their history, there's sometimes there's a king who comes up and he'll be really powerful and really popular, and he'll try to pass it on down to his son. And maybe it'll it'll last for a generation or two, but eventually, like one of the kids is not as strong. He's not strong enough. He's not as bad badass enough as his grandfather or grandfather. Yeah. And then the priest sort of rises up again, and boom! It's another like king's moot sort of century. So it goes all the way back. There's a lot of there's a lot of infighting on the Iron Islands. Oh yeah. Well, it's seven big islands, and you know, there's like 30 different noble yeah. houses on these seven islands. So there's going to be a lot of turmoil. Exactly. Not a lot of room, a lot of a lot of yeah. controversy. So anyway, the Ironborn are very, very powerful until the Andals come. So you know, you've got the first men there first, then the Andals kind of cross over from Essos. Yeah. And the Andals apparently are really good seafarers, right up there with the Ironborn. Yeah. And the Andals, just so people know, they're the ones that brought over the Faith of the Seven. So Which is a big deal. Yeah, what you see most people in Westeros, you know, worshipping the gods, the gods of the Seven. The, the Andals are the ones that brought that over. Yeah, because the First Men had the old gods, and the Andals bring over the Faith of the Seven. Yep. And they also bring over iron, apparently, which is why they're able to take over most, pretty much all of Westeros from the First Men. Because the First Men were still running around with, like, copper or bronze or some shit. Yeah, they didn't know that they were sitting on a bunch of awesome iron. Yeah. <laughs> and the Andals have iron. So anyway, as the Andals sort of expand, they, they check the power of the Ironborn, until eventually the Ironborn basically only control their islands. You know, there's some emigration attempts by the Andals, and they're, they're somewhat successful sometimes. Like, there's one invasion of the Iron Islands that's kind of successful. It only lasts like a generation, but there's some interbreeding and some Andals that are left over. So there is some mixing between the Ironborn and the Andals, but yeah. the Ironborn never really lose their identity the way that the rest of Westeros did when the Andals come over. Yeah. The other thing this kind of that this sort of produces in Iron Island society is an increase in trading, because they're not strong enough to take it, so now all of a sudden they have to trade for it, mm -hmm. and they actually turn into pretty good traders. Yeah. I mean, they're good seafarers. They can get to lots of different ports. And they have to be traders because they can't really get any stuff from their islands. Yeah. Yeah. And they can't take it by force necessarily anymore. Mm -hmm. At least not like they used to be able to. And this is where the whole tradition of the paying the gold price versus the iron price sort of comes in. Yeah. Because you've still got this tension there. You've got this tension between like these realists that are like, look, man, let's just trade and we can live pretty good lives when we can get all the shit we need we'll just buy it instead of take it the gold price yeah pay yeah. the gold price and then you've got you know the people like the priests especially who say no go back to the old way pay the iron price you're a bitch for not paying the iron price you know yeah try to make it so that these merchants are looked down on yeah and theon said like the iron price like iron born men don't wear jewelry unless it's jewelry that they've taken off somebody they killed yeah. That's paying the iron prices. You pretty much, you take it, you kill whoever has what you want, and you take it. Exactly. Yeah. And it's a big deal. There's also, so you've got this additional tension to the one already between the kings and the priests. Now you've got this tension between the priests and the merchants. And there's another bit of tension because there's a bunch of evasions by the Andals, some more successful than others, and with them always comes the Faith of the Seven. Depending on how successful the invasion was, the Faith of the Seven could be in the Iron Islands for a generation or two before shit kind of comes again. Yeah. So it takes a foothold, and you know, you've got this additional tension between the Old Way, you know, the Drowned God, and the Faith of the Seven. Mm -hmm. So there's this tension all throughout the society. You know, on the one side, you've got the Old Way, the Drowned God, the Priests... 
And on the other side, you've got kind of the merchants and the Faith of the Seven and, and this new way, the gold price. Uh, it's it's a very – it's something that's still in the show. It's still in the books. Yeah. And so that's kind of where it all comes from. Yeah, definitely um, a lot in the book five. You you learn a lot about the Iron Islands and what what the tensions of is going on there now, and a lot of it has to do with the faith and you know that the Ironborn are pretty much the first to rebel. If there, someone's going to rebel against yeah. the th- crown, it's usually going to be the Ironborn first because they do it every ten years or so. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, yeah, I mean, that's one thing. That I kind of missed in season five was more Ironborn. Yeah, because we should talk about that during the theories, because there's a lot of cool theories out there about the Ironborn. Yeah, and I think we're gonna get a lot more Ironborn in season six. Twenty-five days away, by the way. Oh God, I can't wait. So anyway, the Ironborn are still badass. I mean, eventually they get the same technology as the Andals, and their power kind of comes back a little bit, and they kind of raid a little bit more. The Andals are fighting each other now that they're sort of established. This is where, you know, you get the wars between, like, the Riverlands and the Stormborn and things like that. And anyway, Hall was actually built by an Ironborn king. Oh, yeah, that's right. Yeah. It was built by a king who actually took over the all the Riverlands. So at one time, the Iron Islands had a king who controlled them and controlled the entire Riverlands. Yeah. That's how badass the Ironborn could be. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, apparently, yeah, the guy who built Hall built it, and then his son, grandson, completed it. Right in time for Aegon to come in and take it over with <laughs> his dragon. Right. Yeah. <laughs> and burn the motherfucker. <laughs> kind of shitty. Yeah. A um, couple of quick things about, like, the uh, the priests of the drowned god that I wanted to touch on, because we don't see him really at all in the shows. So the priests, they, they're pretty disheveled looking. Like, they don't bathe except for in the ocean. And they're covered in seaweed, usually. Yeah, they, like, weave seaweed into their hair and then just kind of let it dr- grow into, like, a dread dr- dreadlock of seaweed slash human hair. And it's always all, you know, nasty and salty. You know how, like, and sandy and shit. Yeah. Um, what else was cool about the priests? So they, they drink seawater. They don't drink a lot of it, but yeah, just to kind of, like, show that they are... Uh, you know, holy enough, they drink some seawater every now and again. Yeah. Um, the only way they baptize people, but it's way more badass than just putting water over someone's head. Like, oh, yeah. They drown you and then revive you. Yeah. And, yeah, they pretty much drown you. You do CPR. And then if you don't live, and like, well, I guess he wasn't strong enough to be a yeah. drowned man. <laughs> <laughs> Not cool enough to be an ironborn. Yeah. And they do it to babies, too. Yeah. Which is nuts. Like, they drown a baby a little bit and then... You know, give it CPR or whatever, you know, push down on his chest and, what are they, chest compressions. Yeah. And if you survive, it's like, yay, the drown God loves you. And if you, you know, if you die, if you drown, yeah, you're too weak. And they already consider themselves to have died. And that's kind of what makes the Ironborn such fearsome fighters is the fact that they're not afraid to die because in their belief systems, like, I've already died. Yeah. What is dead may never die. Only grow again stronger. Exactly. So they're, yeah. they're not afraid of death the way other people in Westeros are. Yeah, and you got to think, part of that too is like, being out on a boat, like on a long seafaring mission, that's got to be one of the easiest ways to die. Like, all you really have to do is just fall off the boat, have someone throw of, you off a boat. Or run out of food or Run some out shit. of food, yeah, just yeah. run out, or the wind could go the wrong way and you can crash, there could be storms, like... When you're surrounded by water that you can't breathe, your chances of dying go up significantly. Exactly. Yeah. You don't want to have to breathe water. (laughs) Yeah. It's bad for you. Don't drink it either. Yeah. Unless you're like a drowned man. Yeah. Unless you're a drowned man, you can build up tolerance. Yeah. And... You know, what I think is very cool throughout the books is always trying to like point out, all right, how are these people really based on sort of deal? And then oh, we, yeah. we made a note that the Dothraki, and George R. R. Martin doesn't make a big secret out of it, Dothraki based upon the steppe people of, you know, Eurasia. Mm-hmm. And it's very clear that the Ironborn are based off the Vikings. Oh, yeah. You know, that their long ships, the way they reeve and rape and pillage, all, all that kind of stuff. I think that one of the things that uh, Martin did that – really works and is cool is he kind of took like different civilizations and made them into these you know game of thrones characters but he kind of took like the best parts of each of them or like the coolest most badass parts of each of them and put them all into one kingdom and made like all these cultures at one time because like you know vikings weren't really around fighting the scythians or anything 
Well, John Bryant, maybe we'll have to get into that. Oh, maybe they will. All right, let's hear it. Vikings pretty badass, John Bryant. Yeah, I don't know a whole lot about the Vikings other than they're Norse. Yeah. So clearly there's some similarities there, but you know there there's surface similarities. Obviously, you know, the long ships, the reaving, the raping, the pillaging, the, the the barbarian sort of mentality that the Ironborn have compared to the West Westeros. But you know it goes even further than that, which is why I wanted to talk a little bit about all the tensions in Ironborn society because you see this exact same sort of dynamic going on in Viking history. So really, what, what we're looking at, by the way, during the Viking Age is kind of like the year 790 to about the year 1066. Okay. Yeah. So it's it's really early on. It's it's way before like the Wars of the Roses. Like it's almost, actually there's more time between this period and the Wars of the Roses than there is between the Wars of the Roses and today. Oh well. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So it, it was a long time ago. But you know the way it kind of starts is these Vikings sort of show up out of nowhere really to the rest rest of Europe. And they find out who they are because they sack an abbey, like a monastery full of monks in England. And people are like, what the fuck just happened? <laughs> how, how, how dare would anyone do that? The rest of Europe is Christian, and these Vikings are still pagans. They still worship Thor and Odin and all those crazy guys. Okay. So they don't give a fuck about Jesus Christ and the <laughs> monasteries. Yeah. And so this is kind of the first we've heard of them because this is their first bigger, biggest like jump into known history, right? Yeah. Like, there's they probably don't have a lot of Viking history before that because they weren't spending a lot of time writing books. Well, I mean, yeah, not books. I mean, they would carve like ruins into stuff, but mostly it was like trees and stuff. So oh. <laughs> it doesn't last a long time. Yeah. Like there, there are some like rocks and everything that have carved ruins in them and stuff that go back. But, you know, they don't tell you very much. They're mostly like names and stuff. So you're like, oh, there's a Viking name from, you know, Who knows 1,500 when? years yeah. ago. <laughs> That's all we know. Yeah. All right. But the Vikings are really cool, and just like the Ironborn, they're not really plugged into the rest of Europe. You know, they're pagan, and the rest of Europe by this time is mostly Christian. Um, at least all, like, the main powers are. Mm-hmm. And the way they interact with these guys is by taking shit from them. There's actually some cool debate about why this actually started. Uh, you know, why the Vikings just decided to explode onto the scene like this. Okay. And there's some cool theories out there. I mean, one of them is, you know, they they come from, like, Scandinavia and stuff, and not a whole lot there, not a whole lot of food and supplies and everything. So there's probably a population boom. They had to hit hit the waters to make ends meet, kind of like the Ironborn sort of do mm-hmm. in the very beginning. But, you know, there's another one, which I think is kind of cool. Probably not true, but there's this guy called Charlemagne running around Europe right before the this, like, 790 year, who... Uh, he's he's a Catholic, he's a new Catholic, and he's the Holy Roman Emperor. He's the most powerful man in Europe during this time. And what he starts doing is forcefully converting pagans in northern Germany. It's like right on the border of Scandinavia and, and the rest of Europe. And forcefully converts them, you know, via torture and everything. Yeah. And the Vikings look at this and they think, that's bullshit, fuck these guys, and then like start like a 300-year war on civilization. Probably not true, but I think it's a pretty badass story. Oh, it makes sense, yeah. Yeah. Um, but, you know, that kind of highlights the way George R. R. Martin, I think, did a really good job of sort of weaving in the, the otherness to the Ironborn compared to the rest of Westeros. Because, I mean, going back, the Iron Islands have always had tension between the culture of Westeros, and so did the Vikings. But what I think is really cool about the Vikings, which I don't feel like is brought up at least enough in the show... It's brought up a little bit in the books, but just how far the Vikings went. I mean, you think of Vikings going to, like, France and England and Ireland and Scotland, you know, stacking shit. But you don't tend to think of them in Spain or the Middle East or Sicily and Italy or Russia. But they were all there. They, wow. Yeah, I mean, everyone knows they went to Iceland and Greenland, too, and they actually got to North America. But, you know, everyone kind of thinks of them like the cold northern, like... No one's there. Waste. No, you don't think of them getting all the way to Istanbul and like modern day <laughs> Turkey, <laughs> but that's where they went, man. And they would go there and they would try to like, you know, rape and pillage and stuff. But they were also really good traders. Okay. 
Uh, I mean, probably had a lot of stuff that no one else, no one had seen. A lot, lot really of furs. Lands. Yeah. yeah, a lot of furs, a lot of walrus tusk and things like that, a lot of amber. And they would tr- usually try to trade for silk. That's what they really liked. Silk and iron. Because even though they had iron up there in Scandinavia, it wasn't very good iron. So what they wanted was like good quality iron from like the Middle East and the rest of Europe. Stuff to make into weapons. Exactly. Yeah. But um, yeah, you just you don't think of like I said a, a Viking in southern Italy. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but they would go there. They they got a lot of different names. So you know everyone knew them as the Vikings in you know northern northwestern Europe, like England primarily. Everyone called them the Vikings, but down in the Middle East, um, they were in the Byzantine Empire. They were called the Varangians. They actually made up an elite guard around the emperor for a few hundred years. Like, this is like the emperor's personal bodyguard was made out of Vikings. Oh, wow. Yeah. In where? In, in uh, modern-day Turkey. Oh, okay. Yeah. So, like, Persia. Like Middle East. Kind of, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Crazy stuff, right? And they actually got into Russia, where they were called the Rus. And the Rus apparently comes from some Slavic word for, like, river people. Because they would take their longships and go right up these big rivers into Russia. And actually, there's some pretty solid evidence that Russians are actually the descendants of Vikings. Huh. Yeah. Like, the the cities that they founded, everything eventually turned into Russia. Yeah, you don't think of Russians as Vikings. They call them the Rus. The Russia. Yeah. Know, their name sense. definitely comes from there. Yeah. Um. So, cool stuff. And, um, you know, the ironborn in the books, they actually get that far. I mean, during that time when they have to be merchants more than pillagers, like, they'll go all the way to the Summer Islands and, you know, the Essos and even, like, Old Valyria and, like, Old Geese. Yeah. Yeah, so these guys get around, and just like the Vikings, they get around a lot farther than you normally think. Yeah, ships have a way of doing that. Yeah, especially these long ships. Yeah, because there's a lot of people that can, you know, make a boat and make a ship, but there's not a lot of people that know how to, you know, plan for a really long voyage. You know, you have to carry all your food with you, water, um, you know, what to do if you run out of wind or... Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so, pretty cool stuff. The other thing that is really interesting in Viking history is another thing that I think George R. R. Martin did a really good job of writing into the Ironborn. He also... You know, like I said, wrote in that sort of religious tension in their society. Well, you get that same t- tension in Viking society, too. They're, they're pagans, and the Christians are always coming in trying to convert them. And in fact, you've got throughout Viking history a lot of fighting between different warlords who, and kings. And sometimes they're fighting their own people, and a lot of times it's it's because they're Christian, and they're trying to make their people be Christian, and the people are like, no, we hold to the old way. We worship Thor and Odin and shit. And, you know, because they wanted to keep on raping and pillaging. If you're a Christian, then you're not supposed to do that to other Christians. you got to yeah. go find people who are not Christian, and those people are a lot farther away than, than the Christians in, like, England, you know? Mm-hmm. So like, that's in their history a lot, and it's I think it's pretty cool that George R. R. Martin kind of wrote that into the books. And, the, you know, each different kind of tribe of people in these books all just have their super rich backstory that's subtly put in there but still is like really meaty and you can just feel feel all those things you know oh yeah you can tell how it influences the way the characters think yeah yeah i mean and i looked into some other stuff that the vikings do i just like like you know reading about the mongolians and stuff imagine the dothraki that stuff when i read about this stuff i imagine the you know the ironborn kind of acting like this Uh what the viking warfare they, they were pretty good warriors but they're they weren't really so keen on fighting wars and battles. They didn't like doing that. They tried to avoid it as much as possible. They preferred to hunt like a pack of wolves. You know, they'd look for like the oldest and slowest, you know, like undefended towns they could just go in and like have their way and like fuck shit up. Yeah, like not have to fight people. Yeah, like Theon does when he takes Winterfell because there's no one there. (laughs) The way Balon does when he says, fuck fighting the Lannisters, they're ready for me. I'm going to go fight the North. They're not ready for me. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So yeah, they would—they're looking for the easy target, and you know, a lot of people think of them as brave, and they—they very—they really were brave, but they also didn't like to fight so much. And I, I looked at you know some Viking like tactics and their weapons and everything, and like I said, it's kind of cool to imagine the Ironborn having this. But you know, most Vikings fought with axes and not swords. Mm-hmm. A sword was almost like a sign of of wealth and like honor and like status. 
almost like a sign of like I'm a man now, because they didn't have good iron in Scandinavia, so they'd have to go get it from somewhere else, which made it really expensive. So usually only like nobles could afford it, but any man who had been on a few like raping and you know pillaging missions, you know two, three, four, depending on how successful they were, he could usually afford to buy a sword. So if you had a sword and you weren't really nobleman, it kind of signaled to everyone else, it's like, I've seen some shit, I've fucked some shit up, here's my badass sword to prove it. Yeah. Kind of cool. Yeah, and it's funny that I just remembered uh, Yara fights with axes instead of, like, a sword. Yeah. And she's, yeah, the queen of the Ironborn, kind of. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Pretty cool stuff. And the other thing I like is the Vikings had this game called Knife Juggling, where they'd take sharpened knives and throw them in the air and try to catch them and everything. Yeah. And the, uh, the Ironborn apparently have another game called The, like the that. Finger Dance. Yeah, the Finger Dance, yeah. where you throw an axe and someone has to catch it. <laughs> <laughs> Sometimes they don't. <laughs> uh, so I thought that was cool. Yeah. Um, the other thing, you know, I, I don't think it's really mentioned about the Ironborn, but, like, Berserkers. Never heard of it. Yeah, like, so there's... There's tales of Viking berserkers, and which is kind of what made them give them such a reputation for being so fierce in battle. But some Vikings would basically go crazy almost. The, the, people think they probably took some sort of like drug or something before battle to do this. But you know they could apparently get stabbed and hit, and they just like wouldn't go down. Like they'd keep going. They literally would just fight to the death and go crazy. So they were all hopped up on PCP or something. Yeah, something. <laughs> and actually, one of the most favorite story, the mo- one of the most famous stories of this happening is um, a, a battle in England right before um, William the Conqueror took it over. You know, it's called the Battle of Stamford Bridge, and like this Viking army had invaded England, and this Eng- and the English king took his army to meet him, and they and they took him by surprise. The Viking army is kind of camped on two sides of the river. They take them by surprise. They kill everyone on one side of the river, and they have to try to cross the bridge to get to the other side. Like, it's all, all surprise attack, you know. But they can't get over the bridge because there's one Viking guy on the bridge with two axes in his hands, not armor <laughs> or anything, just killing every motherfucker that comes close to him. And they can't get over the bridge. He delays them so much that the rest of the Viking army gets away. Wow. This Viking berserker apparently killed 40 guys, and he didn't go down until, like, someone got down into the river and kind of, like, floated in a barrel down. <laughs> and as he got under the bridge, he stabbed the guy with a spear from underneath <laughs> in the river. Nice. Like, that's that's how this berserker finally goes it's, down. It's like the Viking version of the Battle of Thermopylae, except that instead of 300 guys, it's just one guy. Yeah, one <laughs> So I, I was trying to imagine that maybe there's, like, a, one berserker on each, like, ironborn ship. <laughs> just ready to go crazy. A <laughs> drop of a hat. <laughs> the wild card. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Uh, I do know one Viking story. I just remembered I heard about this the other day in an article that there was a Viking um, named, like, Eric the Baby Lover. What? <laughs> or, no, Eric the Child Lover, Ugh. which sounds sounds bad. Yeah. But the reason they called him that is because he was the only Viking that refused to kill children. <laughs> so, like, what are you, some kind of child lover? <laughs> yeah. Kill it. Yeah. <laughs> Jesus. <laughs> yeah. I mean... <clears throat> The other thing that I think is kind of cool, the Vikings, the Ironborn, what is dead may never die. They don't fear death because they're already dead. Mm-hmm. The Vikings had sort of the same thing. They believed that as soon as they were born, the day and the manner of their death was like written by the gods. Okay. There's no escaping it. You can't get around it. The gods only give you two things. They give you life and they give you the free will to do whatever you want with it until your time comes. So a lot of these Viking guys, like, they didn't really fear death because they were like, it's going to happen and it's... The way it's going to happen, it's already set, it's predetermined, there's nothing I can do to get away with it. Uh, when it happens, it happens, and I'm just going to be the biggest badass I can until <laughs> that happens. <laughs> Alright. Yeah. It's one way to look at it, I kind of like it. Yeah, you know, they they didn't really fear death, because it's like, hey, nothing you can do about it, it's going to happen, might as well be a motherfucker until then. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, another cool thing. Um, yeah, and I just... I, don't know, I really think the Vikings are cool and the Ironborn are cool. That's kind of why I liked them. Yeah, it's and great that we can. Uh, I like that we can tie in these real world people into the world of Westeros and how George R. R. Martin's kind of cleverly, you know, put these things in there. Yeah. And like I said, I like thinking about it as just like he kind of just took like all the best cultures throughout the you know 
millennia and put them all into one time in one place. Right. Let's yeah. just see who wins. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, and kind of going off that thing where it's reading about the Vikings and want to imagine the Ironborn. What I did is I actually found a translation of a journal of this Arabic guy from like the 900s who traveled all the way to what is now modern Russia and hung out with some Vikings for a while. And just, he actually has some excerpts that are really cool, and so I, I just wanted to read from them and kind of tell you, like, literally a first-hand account of Vikings. This is what the dude saw. From someone who's not a Viking. and this yeah, is From someone of... who's a Muslim trader. <laughs> okay. <laughs> again, you don't normally think of Vikings hanging out with Muslims. <laughs> I saw the Rus. So, yeah, again, he calls them the Rus. I saw the Rus when they had arrived on their trading expedition and had disembarked at the River Attil. The River Attil is somewhere in southern Russia. I have never seen more perfect physiques than theirs. They are like palm trees. They are fair and reddish, and do not wear the kirtak or the kaftan. The kaftan is like a robe. It's what normally Arabs and Muslims wore. It's okay. kind of a flowing robe. Instead, the man wears a cloak with which he covers one half of his body, leaving one of his arms uncovered. Every one of them carries an axe, a sword, and a dagger, and is never without all of that which we have mentioned. Their swords are of the Frankish variety, with broad, ridged blades. Each man, from the tip of his toes to his neck, is covered in dark green lines, pictures and such like. Probably tattoos. Oh, crazy. I, yeah, never thought of Viking Seven tattoos, but they probably did. Yeah. Each woman has, on her breast, a small disc tied around her neck, made of either iron, silver, copper, or gold, in relation to her husband's financial and social worth. Each disc has a ring to which a dagger is attached, also lying on her breast. Around their necks they wear bands of gold and silver. Whenever a man's wealth reaches 10,000 dirhams, I have no idea how much that is. Yeah. But anyway, whenever a man's wealth reaches 10,000 dirhams, he has a band made for his wife. If it reaches 20,000 dirhams, he has two bands made for her. For every 10,000 more, he gives another band to his wife. Sometimes one woman may wear many bands around her neck. The jewelry with which they prize the most is the dark green ceramic beads which they have aboard their boats, and which they value very highly. They purchase beads for a deer hem apiece and string them together as necklaces for their wives. Yeah. So the richer you are, the fancier your wife is. It's kind of like how things are today. Yeah, know. exactly. How big is your maybe, wedding ring? Maybe that, that's where that whole thing came from. Huh? Yeah, maybe. Yeah. Well, I think it's cool. Like you said, they're all super tall and really strong. And Chris Hainsworth. Covered in tattoos. Yeah. <laughs> Thor with tattoos. All right. He, he goes on. He says, They arrive from their territory and moor their boats by the Attil. So again, this is that river in southern Russia. They're traveling along the rivers. Building on its banks large wooden houses. They gather in the one house in their tens and twenties, sometimes more, sometimes less. Each of them has a couch on which he sits. They are accompanied by beautiful slave girls for trading. One man will have intercourse with his slave girl while his companions look on. <laughs> Sometimes a group of them comes together to do this, each in front of the other. Sometimes, indeed, the merchant will come in to buy a slave girl from one of them, and he will chance upon him having intercourse with her. But the ruse will not leave her alone until he satisfies his urge. Sounds like a pretty open society. I'm going to do whatever the hell I want, whatever I want. But anyway, it sounds crazy. It yeah. goes on. This is even crazier. They cannot, of course, avoid washing their faces and their heads each day, which they do with the filthiest and most polluted water imaginable. I shall explain. Every day the slave girl arrives in the morning with a large basin containing water, which she hands to her owner. He washes his hands and his face and his hair in the water. Then he dips his comb in the water and brushes his hair, blows his nose, and spits in the basin. There is no filthy impurity which he will not do in this water. I think that means he also pisses and shits in the water if he needs to. Okay. I'm not sure. When he no longer requires it, the slave girl takes the basin to the man beside him, and he goes through the same routine as his friend. She continues to carry it from one man to the next until she has gone round everyone in the house, with each of them blowing his nose and spitting, washing his hair and face in the basin. The fuck? I know. It's <laughs> gross, Why are they right? just giving new water every time? Or... I don't know. Huh. What is dead may never die. <laughs> okay, except for bacteria. 
the funny thing about this, he describes them as, yeah, sounding like disgusting, right? Yeah. Horrible things. But apparently in places like England especially, this was more washing than anyone would ever do. That's true, (laughs) yeah. And apparently, like, women kind of, some women actually had a thing for Vikings because they were clean. Oh, really? (laughs) (laughs) Like, yeah, he's covered in tattoos and he kind of raped me a bunch of times, but his hands were clean. And he combs his hair. And he combs his hair. (laughs) Yeah, it's um, crazy stuff. And, of course, I have to mention, he says, they are addicted to alcohol, which they drink night and day. Sometimes one of them dies with the cup still in his hand. Good for him. Hard, hard Newt died the death all good Vikings would desire, standing in his drink. <laughs> standing in his drink? <laughs> I assume that means he died drinking. <laughs> okay. <laughs> in fact, there's, there's kind of a story, because, you know, Islam, you're not allowed to drink or anything. And apparently... Uh, one of these Viking lords later on, who were kind of turning into like Russian, like the foundations of Russia. So they're they're kind of being wooed by you know the the Orthodox Church in Byzantium, the the Catholic Church out in Rome. They're also being wooed by the, the Islamic Caliphate in the Middle East. And they're trying to convert all these people to their own religion. Yeah. And he's talking with all of them, and apparently he says to the guy trying to convert them to Islam, he says we can't do it because Drinking is the joy of the ruse, and we cannot live without this pleasure. Yeah. Basically, he says, sorry, I can't be Muslim. Got to get my drink on. Yeah, dude, well, that's why I'm not religious. Yeah. <laughs> See, so, <laughs> these guys like to drink. My favorite part, my favorite part, this one's kind of long, but it's just, it, it's crazy. It's He tells a story of a Viking funeral. Oh. Like one of their chieftain, like really powerful chieftains dies, and he describes the whole thing. It's kind of long, but I think it's really cool. <clears throat> when that man whom I mentioned earlier died, so this is that great chieftain, they said to his slave girls, who will die with him? And one of them said, I shall. So they placed two slave girls in charge of her to take care of her and accompany her wherever she went even to the point of occasionally washing her feet with their own hands. So basically, she kind of gets treated like a highborn, but she's going to be sacrificed to die with this chieftain. Uh-huh. They set about attending to the dead man, preparing his clothes for him, and setting right all he needed. Every day, the slave girl would drink alcohol and would sing merrily and cheerfully. On the day when he and the slave girl were to be burned, I arrived at the river where his ship was. To my surprise, I discovered that it had been beached and that four planks of birch and other types of wood had been erected for it. Around them, wood had been placed in such a way as to resemble resemble scaffolding. Then the ship was hauled and placed on top of this wood. They advanced, going to and fro around the boat, uttering words which I did not understand, while he was still in his grave and had not been exhumed. Basically, they're saying they're they're setting the ship up to be burned. Yeah. Then they produced a couch and placed it on the ship, covering it with quilts made of Byzantine silk brocade and cushions made of Byzantine silk brocade. So super fancy, rich stuff that they're just going to burn. Yeah, Yeah, remember, the Vikings loved silk. Then a crone arrived, whom they called the Angel of Death, and she spread on the couch the coverings we have mentioned. She is responsible for having his garments sewing up and putting him in order, and it is she who kills the slave girls. I myself saw her, a gloomy, corpulent woman, neither young nor old. When they came to his grave, they removed the soil from the wood, and then removed the wood, exhuming him in the Izar in which he had died. I don't know what Izar means. It's not translated. Coffin, maybe? Maybe. Yeah. I could see that he had turned black because of the coldness of the ground. They had also placed alcohol, fruit, and a Pandora beside him in the grave, all of which they took out. A Pandora apparently is like a musical instrument. I guess this guy liked to make music. Surprisingly, he had not begun to stink, and only his color had deteriorated. They clothed him in trousers, leggings, boots, and a kirktah and a silk kaftan, with golden buttons, and placed a silk fringe with sable on his head. 
So pretty normal funeral so far. Yeah. You, know, you I get mean, the body dressed up. You put nice things around it. Like we do flowers and put them in a nice coffin and put them in a suit or whatever. Yeah, but remember, they kind of dug him up for this. He was already in the ground. Well, I think, <laughs> I think that's how they preserve. They would like kind of preserve Maybe. bodies until they were ready because it's really cold. Yeah, you know, the cold the ground. ground there. Yeah. Probably. It's, I didn't think about that. There's not much air. Yeah. <laughs> they carried him inside the pavilion on the ship and laid him to rest on the quilt propping him with cushions. Then they brought alcohol, fruit, and herbs and placed them beside him. Next they brought bread, meat, and onions, which they cast in front of him, a dog, which they cut in two and which they threw onto the ship, and all of his weaponry, which they placed beside him. Then they brought two mounts, made them gallop until he began to sweat, cut them up into pieces, and, and threw the flesh onto the ship. They next fetched two cows, which they also cut up into pieces and threw on a board, and then a cock and a hen, which they slaughtered and cast onto it. Meanwhile, the slave girl who wished to be killed entering one pavilion after another. The owner of the pavilion would have intercourse with her and say to her, Tell your master that I have done this purely out of love for you. <laughs> <laughs> Tell your master I tagged you because I wanted to. Because yeah. you're fine. <laughs> All right. I know, you know how they say, like, the slave girl wanted to be killed? <laughs> you really think she wanted that? I don't know, man. <laughs> Tough to tell. Uh, I don't know. The, yeah, religion makes people do crazy things, but I've never seen it make anyone do that. <laughs> yeah. At the time of the evening prayer on Friday, they brought the slave girl to a thing that they had constructed, like a door frame. She placed her feet on the hands of the man and was raised above that door frame. She said something, and they brought her down. Then they lifted her up a second time, and she did what she had done the first time. Then they brought her down, and then lifted her up a third time, and she did what she had done on the first two occasions. They next handed her a hen. She cut off its head and threw it away. They then took the hen and threw it on board the ship. I quizzed the interpreter about her actions, and she said, The first time they lifted her, she said, Behold, I see my father and my mother. The second time she said, Behold, I see all of my dead kindred seated. The third time she said, Behold, I see my master seated in paradise. Paradise is beautiful and verdant. He is accompanied by his men and his male slaves. He summons me, so bring me to him. So they brought her to the ship, and she removed two bracelets that she was wearing, handing them to the woman called the Angel of Death, the one who was to kill her. She also removed two anklets that she was wearing, handing them to the two slave girls who had waited upon her. They were the daughters of the crone known as the Angel of Death. Then they lifted her onto the ship, but did not bring her into the pavilion. The men came with their shields and sticks and handed her a cup of alcohol, over which she chanted and then drank. The interpreter said to me, Thereby she bids her female companions farewell. She was handed another cup, which she took and chanted for a long time, while the crone urged her to drink it and enter the pavilion in which her master lay. I saw that she was befuddled and wanted to enter the pavilion, but she had only put her head into the pavilion while her body remained outside of it. The crone grabbed hold of her head and dragged her into the pavilion, entering it at the same time. The men began to bang their shields with their sticks so that her, her screams could not be heard and so terrified the other slave girls who would not then seek to die with their masters. So this is the part where it makes me think maybe she didn't quite understand their end game here. Like, oh, don't worry, sweetheart. You're just going to, you know, have sex with a couple of the, you know, more hired generals in the army, and then we're going to dress you up real fancy, give you lots of gifts, and then you got to do something with this crone in this tent, and, and then, then you're done. done. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. Part of me also thinks, I mean, clearly this is religious, and maybe it's like a huge honor. She's going to be like super cool in the afterlife. Maybe. The other thing I notice is that she's always drinking, it sounds like. Oh, yeah. I'm sure they get her pretty drunk. Well, I, I don't think it's probably just alcohol. I'm sure they probably put something in it to like really mess her up. Could be. Yeah, you know, because, again, this, this Arab guy, he doesn't drink. He doesn't even know what alcohol does. I, I don't think alcohol makes you do that necessarily. I think it, she probably, like, with the chanting over the drink and everything, there's probably some sort of, like, herbs or something in it that make you just whack out. Could be. Yeah. That's, I think that's probably part of it, too. Yeah. Six men entered the pavilion, and all had intercourse with the slave girl. They laid her down beside her master, and two of them took hold of her feet, 
Two of them took hold of her hands. The crone called the angel of death, placed a rope around her neck in such a way that the ends crossed one another and handed it to the two men to pull on. Oh, God damn. She advanced with a broad-bladed dagger and began to thrust it in and out between her ribs, now here, now there, while the two men throttled her with the rope until she died. Yuck. Then the deceased's next of kin approached and took hold of a piece of wood and set fire to it. He walked backwards with the back of his neck to the ship, his face to the people, with the light of piece of wood in one hand, and the other hand on his anus being completely naked. I swear to God, that's what, she, that's what it says. That's weird. He ignited the wood that had been set up under the ship after they had placed the slave girl whom they had killed beside her master. Then the people came forward with sticks and firewood. Each one carried a stick, the end of which he had set fire to, and which he threw on top of the wood. The wood caught fire, and then the ship, the pavilion, the man, the slave girl, and all it contained. A dreadful wind arose, and the flames leapt higher and blazed fiercely. Wow. That's a Viking funeral. Yeah, usually when they, when people talk about the Viking funeral, it's more that you, know, you burn the body in a boat, not so much killing of the slave girls. Yeah. Um, so I don't know. I, I don't think we ever seen an ironboard funeral, but God, maybe they do something like this too. Probably. Kind of crazy. Yeah. yeah. Send the salt wives to the drowned gods hall along with the man. Yeah. And it's funny, they have wives and then they have salt wives. And like their wives are like the ones they leave on like at home and then the salt wives are the ones they take on their ships with them. <laughs> yeah. Uh, interesting people. I wonder which born. one got burnt in the Viking ceremony, if it was the wife or the salt wife. Probably the salt wife, because in the Viking ceremony, it's the slave girl. That's true, yeah. So it sounds like a salt wife to me. Yeah. Yeah, but yeah, I mean, kind of kind of fun stuff. But again, I mean, are these are these raping pillagers, or are they just religious pariahs? Very good question. Maybe one that we'll never know the answer to. That's true. Maybe it's a little bit of both. We forgot to answer it in this one-hour discussion. <laughs> oh, shit, it's been an hour? That's <laughs> yeah, all right. All well, right. Top five best moments in the show. This is Westeros Public Radio with Lynn the Jazzman Thunder. I am the god of shits and wine. And John Bryant. I vomited on a girl once in the middle of the act, not proud of it. Bringing you the latest and greatest from Westeros. The time is 6.35. Valyrian Standard. Top five lists are mo- moments in the show that are just better in the show than they are in the book. and Things that the show did better than the books. Yeah. And things can be argued either way. You know, there are a lot of times where the, the book is better than the show, and just because it's way more in-depth. But I think certain scenes or certain parts of the story are really just better seen than read. Yeah, they, they come alive a little bit better. Exactly. So, John Bryant, once again, you've made your list. I've made my list. Let's let's compare them. All right. My number five... Uh, I'm sorry. Would you like to go first? Or you want me to go first? I'll go first. My, my number five <laughs> <laughs> is Heart Home. Heart Home. The Battle of Heart Home? The Battle of Heart Home. Because in the... Good okay, choice. So, break this down. In the book, it doesn't really happen. Yeah. He, John Snow just kind of sends people to Heart Home, and then they come back. But in the show, when Jon Snow goes to Heart Home to find all the, you know, the wildling refugees, basically the thousands of people that'll, that are still north of the wall, um, pretty far away from the wall, he goes there and brings a bunch of boats and they start loading them up and then the others come. And yeah. boy, do they come hard. That's a badass scene. Yeah, just watching that army of the dead come through and, uh, you know, to the gates, and then finally they kind of break down the gate just by throwing themselves at the gate over and over and over again, and then... Oh, and then just fucking fly off the wall. Yeah. Oh, my God. Yeah, they just jump off a cliff to get down. Like, oh, we don't have to climb down. We just jump down and land. And then the kids, the dead kids. Oh, yeah, the dead kids are hard. Yeah, and I'll... Since we're... Hurry into this, I'll jump to the right at the end of that scene, which is so badass when just that one white walker comes out and is looking at Jon Snow on the boat and he just kinda like lifts his hands and all these thousands of freshly dead bodies and old dead bodies just rise up and now You've done nothing, Jon Snow. Oh god, that's fucking badass. That was one of the top five parts of the show that was just freaking awesome. Yeah. Uh good choice, good choice, John. Thank you. 
Uh, my number five is The Hound's Death. Because in the books, it's sort of inglorious, which I guess is yeah. a little bit poetic, maybe. The Hound's Death is more about Arya than it is the Hound. Yeah. yeah. But I also I, I thought it was so much better in the show, where he's in this badass fist fight, basically, is what it turns into with Brienne. Yeah. And then just goes down. And, and the way he begs Arya to kill him, really, it, it didn't really come across that way in the books. I mean, I know he kind of did. Yeah, it doesn't. It's it's what it's pretty much what happens that, but him asking Arya to kill her and giving reasons why she should, and then her not doing it, oh, it's a heartbreaker. Yeah, because you know you kind of thought that maybe him and her would turn into friends. Yeah, they, they kind of well, and they almost they kind of had, and you know the hounds on Arya's list. He killed the uh, Micah, the butcher's boy. He tells her that he raped her, her sister. I mean. She's got lots of reasons to kill the hound, and it it was very. I think I was disappointed that she didn't. Yeah, I, but that uh, would have been merciful, and she wasn't trying to do that. Yeah, but yeah. The and, big yeah. It's. It, I thought it it hit me a lot harder in the show than it did in the books. Yeah, and in the books, we find out later that a maester comes and finds. And he uh, might not be dead. The hound. Well, the maester says he's dead. But he might be lying. I don't know. Maesters don't lie. Well, this seems like a good guy. He tells Brian, you know, he was dead. I, I kind of, I gave him water and made him, tried to make him comfortable as he was dying. And then I buried him and I put his helm on top of the, where I buried him and someone else picked up the helm and has been running around. Well, but yeah, he's also, George R. R. Martin goes out of his way to talk about this huge guy. The hound's a big guy doing work kind of off in the distance too. Yeah, so he could have been... I mean, yeah. the Abbot might have been telling the truth the same way that, you know, Obi-Wan Kenobi was telling the truth when he said that Luke Skywalker's father was dead. Yeah. You know, maybe, maybe the person who was the Hound died, and the Hound's a new person now. He's not so the Hound anymore. He may, he definitely died, but he may not be dead. Yeah. Okay. Something like that. I mean, hell, it wouldn't be the first time in the books. Yeah, but that is one of my favorite scenes in, in the show is when Arya just leaves the Hound. And it's not because I like what she did. It's because I'm so like, what the fuck? Yeah. <laughs> Uh, okay, so that's my number five. Okay. Number four is Daenerys' son. Okay. From from the first books, you know, she gets pregnant with Khal Drogo and, and loses it. And it's the same thing in the first season. This is one where I just got to sort of commend the, the, the show writers and directors, whoever's in charge of this decision. Thank you for exercising a little bit of restraint. Because the way her son comes out, it's described very vividly in the books and everything, and... It's, it's almost like you've seen it happen. She's given a birth to like this horrible blackened, like winged monstrosity, crazy thing. Yeah. And the books is just, or in, in the show, it's just kind of mentioned it. I'm, I immediately thought to myself, thanks for not showing me that. All right. I appreciate that. I would have liked to see it. <laughs> I would not have liked to see it. All right. My number four favorite part that happened in the show better than in the books is the trial by combat between the mountain and the red viper. That that scene stuck with me for a long time after I first saw it. Yeah, even was, though I knew it was coming, it was like, holy shit! That whole like fight is just freaking cool. You know what? You know what sticks out with me the most? What is when Ober and Martell gets punched by the mountain? And his teeth just go and like clattering like marbles or pebbles. I, I I I cannot get that sound out of my head even to this day. What whenever sticks- I think about that scene, that sound <laughs> comes to me. Thing. <laughs> oh. I, I liked when he smushed his head. With his bare hands. Yeah. And then that, they'd show just like that one frame of his smushed head afterwards. Yeah. Oh, God. Then I smashed her fucking head in <laughs> like this! <laughs> and his his wife or whoever is with, that chick that's with uh, Oberyn is just screaming the entire time. Yeah. Oh, oh. gosh. But that part, in the, in the it's one, one thing to read it, and it's still good to read, but to see it play out like that, and pretty awesome. Yeah. Terribly awesome. I boy, they really they 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 did that scene right. Yeah. Um, my number three scene that was better in the show would be when Danny gets the Unsullied and takes it from the Astaporians. Oh yeah. When she just Dracarys and the guy's got the dragon on the leash and he's like, "What am I doing? What do I do here? Tell your dragon to a baby." <laughs> and then the dragon just burns that dude and. Daenerys just, she's got the whip now. She's unsullied. Kill the masters. Anyone who holds a whip, kill them. And there's like an like a instant of hesitation on their part until one of them's like, 
okay. Yeah. And boom, and then, oh, that's just, there's no going back. Yeah. Like, I've been wanting to do this for a long time, actually. Yeah. All right. Cool. All right. I can get behind this. <laughs> so, yeah, that part was pretty awesome. It was a good scene. It was when you finally get to see the dragons do some cool shit. Yeah. Um, good choice. My number three is actually not a moment. It's actually a character. I like the way they did Theon in the show more than I like him in the books. Okay, yeah, that's my number two. So oh, let's talk good about choice. it. Mine was specifically all the scenes where Theon is being tortured. <laughs> yeah. I mean, what I liked in the show is he really kind of – something that I thought was interesting, the whole dynamic between Ramsay and Theon, is they both really crave the approval and love of their fathers. That's why Theon, he goes to Rob, and in the show they've made it clear that he totally was on Rob's side and wanted to fight on Rob's side and tell his dad's like, what, are you a bitch now? Yeah, well, what, are you gonna, now you're a Stark? You're going to let someone give you a crown? We take the crown. We pay the iron price for the crown. It kind of called him out. It's like, you're not a real ironborn. You're not my real son. And Theon is like, oh, man, all right, fine, I'll do this, but only because I want you to love me, daddy. Yeah. And then Ramsey, I mean, why is he doing all this shit to Theon? It's because he wants to prove to his dad he's ruthless and it's good enough to be his true son. Yeah. So I, I always thought that was interesting, but... I just like how in the show you kind of see the that psychological warfare between uh, Ramsey and Theon, where Ramsey totally has the upper hand the entire time. Yeah. And in the show, it's kind of Theon reflecting on what happened to him. You kind of, We come to him as Reek, and he slowly kind of tells you the things that happened to him that made him become Reek. Yeah. Whereas in the show, you go through that with him, and you see the transformation a little more. Yeah, those are some intense scenes, too. Yeah. Yeah, I, mean, I think I think Theon in the show is a lot better because I think he's a little more complex. He's a little more divided between, you know, wanting the approval of his father and trying to be loyal to the people who raised him. And then, you know, the whole Reek thing has just done a lot better in the show. Yeah. All right, we need your number two. All right, my number two, again, it's not, I cheated a little bit, not really one moment, home with the wall. The wall's been on, like, every list you have. I know. I like it is wall. way cooler to see the wall than to read about the wall. I got to say, getting the description of the wall in the books and everything, like, I had a picture in my head, and it was nowhere near as cool as the picture you get on the show. Yeah. Like, they just blew me away with the wall on the show. I thought I did a fantastic job. Way better than it's described in the books. Yeah. Yeah, I think they just do a good job of portraying what's described in the books and the wall. I think even George R. R. Martin himself, like the first time he saw like the wall sequences, he was like, "Wow, it's way more badass than anything I had imagined." Oh wow! Yeah, so. <laughs> good job on the wall, Game of Thrones show. Yeah, good HBO. job. HBO really does hit it sometimes. All right, John Bryant, what's your number one? My number one thing that was better to watch on the show than read about in the books was the Battle of the Blackwater. Ooh. The Battle of the Blackwater episode is my favorite episode of Game of Thrones, and it's mainly because of the, a few of those Blackwater scenes, like when when uh, Bronn uh, shoots the flaming arrow into the boat that's full of uh, uh, wildfire. And the Blackwater scene, especially when there's this part where the the army of uh, the um, King's Landing looks like it's about to, you know, everyone's about to run away and hide and flee. And Tyrion sees it like, all right, someone's got to do something here. And he goes, I'll lead the army. And he kind of says it to himself. And he kind of has yeah. to like convince himself <laughs> that it, he has to do this now. And he goes, all right, I'll lead the army. Or I will lead them. And then he yells, I will lead you. <laughs> so, I love that part especially. That um, is good. Yeah, so Battle of the Blackwater is my number one. What about you, Lynn Thunder? Number one, again, cheated. Not very good at this list. It's a hard list. To make. I know. My number one is Braun. The character Braun. Braun is much better in the show than he is in the books. In the books, I mean, he's kind of cool, but you don't really get to know him very well. He's just sort of Tyrion's, like, button man. Yeah, he's got a couple funny lines here or there, but yeah. he's just not the swaggering awesomeness that is Braun in the show. Yeah, he's got all this bravado in the show, and he can sing and everything, and he's a good fighter, and, you know, he can talk shit with the best of them. I.E. Tyrion. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, he just, he's like, like a dirty uncle to Podrick. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Lad, just go in there. <laughs> but yeah, he's, I don't know. I, I like that they made him into a bigger character, gave him a bigger role on the show. And 
I think they did a good job with him because he's, I think I mentioned, he was on one of my honorables for top five characters. Yeah, I was really disappointed in the books when when they sent Jamie off to go do side mission stuff away from King's Landing. In the books, they send him with Sir Ilian Payne. Which is kind of the exact opposite of yeah. Braun. Because <laughs> Ilya Bane can't talk, and the best part of Braun is his wittiness. Yeah. So I, I think that's a, a great number one. All right. Yeah. Well, John Murray, let, let's run them down. My number, my top five. Number five was The Hound's Death. Number four was Daenerys' Son. Number three was Theon. Number two was The Wall. And my number one thing that the show did better than the books is the character of Braun. All right, my number one, or I'm sorry, my number five was Heart Home, just because it was an awesome battle scene. Um, the Mountain and the Viper, just because, yeah, trial by combats are cool. Um, Danny taking the Unsullied, um, all the scenes of Theon being tortured, and the Battle of the Blackwater. I think that's a good. I think we did a good job on this list. A solid list. A good top five. Yeah. So I think next week we got to do things that the book did better than the show. We got to be fair. Yeah, I think that's just a great way to do this. We kind of go back and forth on them. Okay. All right. So, yeah, we're going to – I think we're going to have to skip the theories. Yeah, we, we went a little long we on went the Vikings. Long with, the, with the Vikings and the Ironborn, there's just so much to talk about. But uh, we'll try to get to some fan theories and what we think is going to happen in Season 6 because it's, it's 25 days away, man. That's right. And one, let you small folk know, we are still tracking the Wars of the Roses story. Just didn't get to it this time. Got stuck on the Vikings. Yeah. Uh, but just to give you a little preview of what's coming up, you know, we're going to have a love story. We're going to have some pretty big betrayals. Nice. And even a 600-year-old double murder mystery. All right. So some good stuff coming up in the Wars of the Roses, small folks. Stay tuned and tune in next week. All right. Thanks for listening to WPR, Westeros Public Radio. You're our talker. Listening to talkers makes me thirsty. I understand that if any more words come pouring out your cunt mouth, I'm gonna have to eat every fucking chicken in this room. If you think this has a happy ending, you haven't been paying attention. I found it surprisingly beautiful, in a brutal, horrible, uncomfortable sort of